I call depression my dark little friend or my dark little bastard, depending on how bad it happens to be at the moment. I think I had to name it for it to be real. Naming it helped me accept it and become friends with it. To me, depression is like a moist fog that clogs my brain. It makes all thoughts disoriented and my feelings become hard to navigate. Depression is going to bed feeling good and then waking up at 2 in the morning feeling like your head is sewn to the pillow. When I come to the realization that my dark little friend has arrived and the hours, days, or weeks to come will be filled with self-doubt, a sense of being a worthless piece of shit, and insomnia, I want to withdraw in a deep hole or take a long walk in the woods and hide. I feel this way because I think that I don't deserve to be around anyone. I don't deserve happiness or love. And the people I love most will have to witness my suffering. That's when depression causes guilt because your suffering affects those around you and it's not fair to them. So the awful feeling of worthlessness increases. Depression can make me cry. As I picture myself as a once little blonde-haired boy that was shy and withdrawn at times because his self-doubt was already sinking deep in his soul. I cry when I see the look in my wife's eyes when she knows my depression has visited me and she is a witness to my suffering. She hangs on until it lifts. I shed a tear when I have thoughts about how my death would be best for anyone around me. My wife, mom, brother, sister, nieces and nephews, and my students. I'm a burden that should be punished or exiled. I'm never certain how long depression will visit. It plays with my emotions like spring weather. When it finally lifts, I am thankful for how good I feel. It's like a rebirth, and I come out of the darkness charging ahead with life that a moment before seemed trapped in mud. Therefore, depression allows me to feel renewed over and over. One has to turn such things into a positive because the alternative is too heartbreaking. As bad as depression can feel, and the mental and physical pain that it brings, I would never wish that I would, not, that I would have been spared from it. Depression is a part of me and has made me stronger. Building resilience in order to survive the darkness. It has been a great teacher, and I am a devoted student trying to learn as much as I can through each lesson, each moment. Hopefully, it has granted me some wisdom that I can pass on to others and help guide them through the relationship with their own dark little friend. All right, welcome to my podcast, Nothing to Prove. Uh, many of you have reached out after listening to um, some of my podcasts uh, that I've had in the past, and I do appreciate the the listeners and the followers. Um and many of you have reached out and you've asked for me to talk a little bit about my own experience with uh, depression, anxiety, and trauma. Um, what I just uh, read to you was uh, from a blog post um, that I wrote. And uh, just um, a little bit of what depression is like for me. And I will say depression is, is different for everyone. It's something that... Um, you know, we we deal with in, in our own way. However, there's also many things that people that have depression um, deal with that that is very similar as well. Part of the reason that I 
have tried to be very transparent with my own um, depression and anxiety and, and some of my stories because uh, what I've noticed over the years is that when I do share, even though it feels extremely vulnerable, um, it's inevitable that people reach out to me and they've connected in some way and it makes them feel like they're not alone, uh, which is exactly why I speak up. I'm sure, you know, um, and these are some of the stigmas around it. I'm sure there are people out there that probably listen to some of my stories or they read the things that I've written, uh, maybe even the books that I've published or they, they'll read that. And I'm sure there's stigmas around it. Um, you know, with people with their own opinions or maybe thinking that I share too often or share too much. Uh, but again, um, what I've gotten as a result of sharing is people have said that it's really helped them. Uh, and if, if I can give a little bit of myself in order to help others, I'm willing to do that, um, no matter how vulnerable that does feel. Um, so again, you know, people have reached out, they asked me to share a little bit about my story and sort of, uh, my own journey, um, with, uh, with the depression, anxiety and past traumas. And, you know, with that, um, I'll say that I started, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty positive looking, <clears throat> looking back on it that I've had depression most of my life. It's something that, um, you know, I've come to accept. I've come to accept some of the trauma that has happened to me. Um, I grew up in a, a household that I witnessed abuse, uh, verbal and physical, um, but I also experienced a lot of it. Uh, much of it was behind closed doors or uh, when I was alone at home you know, with my father, but, uh, much of the abuse that I've experienced, uh, was physical, emotional, and also sexual. And that was something that lat latter part was something that, um, I didn't really share with anyone until recent years. And it was, um, something that it was very hard for me to come to terms with, uh, to even tell my wife, about who I've known since I was 13. Um, it was very difficult to talk to my mother about. But I found out that uh, once again, I needed to be transparent, speak about these things in order for myself to start to heal as well. Uh, which is why I encourage people to speak up and talk and you know, the hell with the stigmas. Um, Depression, anxiety, uh, they are not weaknesses. If anything, it builds a, a strength like no other. When you have to push through the darkness, push through the, the fear and, and utter panic of anxiety, you build resilience, you build strength. Uh, when, you, when you start to accept things that are happening to you and decide that, you know, this is your life to live and you want to do something about it. Um, it's important to uh, recognize those things, but they inevitably will build strength. And that's why I feel like people that are, are suffering or have suffered 
uh, with much of these, uh, the darkness, um, it does, it, it builds us up into, uh, uh, people that are very strong. And that's why I say the hell with the stigmas. You know, as, as I got a little older and, in into high school, um, a lot of the physical and the sexual abuse ended, you know, I was, um, becoming too big for that to happen anymore, but the emotional abuse continued. And I did, um, I still, it, you know, depression back, you know, then in, in the eighties or whatnot, where it was not talked about as much as it is now. Um, I did have a teacher that brought it up to me that she did think I, I was depressed. She invited me into an AODA class that she was teaching, uh, because I was drinking a lot. Um, I did have a lot of suicidal ideation. Uh, I did make an attempt one time with some pills that basically didn't do much, made me sick. So I had no idea what the hell I actually took, but, um, that was when I was 16. And, you know, I, I was not a good student. Um, was very truant, did not care about my grades. Uh, school did not engage me whatsoever. And it was something that, um, you know, affected me quite a bit, you know, my self-efficacy, my self-esteem, everything was just lowered from those experiences. Um, I did have one thing going for me. I, I, I met a, a girl that was beautiful inside and out and, um, you know, I've been with her ever since and that has been the best thing that's ever happened to me in my life. And that actually her encouragement and her kindness and her love and her beauty all helped me navigate through some of those tough years. Um, but as I got into my 20s, you know, some of the trauma that I experienced uh, came undone. Um, we all tend to compartmentalize uh, our past or the, the things that we suffer from or make us suffer. We, we compartmentalize that. We put it in a box. We seal it up for our own survival. It happens quite a bit. For me, that, that box came undone when I was 22 years old. I found myself driving out to the house I grew up in with the intention of walking into the woods next to that house. And I was going to climb a tree that I climbed as a kid and I was going to end it all. But I got to that tree. I got to the base of it. I basically looked up, fell to my knees, gripped the soil as hard as I could, came up with dirt in my hands, and I hugged the hell out of that tree. I hung on with dear life because I tried my hardest not to climb up and do what I was going to do. And again, you know, my fiance, who at the time, who is now my wife, who was my high school sweetheart, her, her, the vision of her kept coming in my head, and I knew what I had to do. I had to walk out of that woods and go back to her. But I also, that was uh, one of the times that I started to tell her a little bit about what actually happened to me as a, as a child. Um. Now, as I tell these stories, you know, sometimes I, I, and it could be my own distortions and schemas or whatnot, but I, I've, 
I've heard people talk like this before, but you know, it's kind of like, well, you got to let those things go. You just got to let it go. You got to let your depression go. Just be happy. Um, forget about that. That's the past. It's not that easy. And this is why there's a lot of stigmas out there that are very, very harmful, especially to our young people who are trying to navigate their own depression, anxiety. Uh, it's very harmful to them. And so we got to get rid of that dialogue that you just got to let shit go um, or it's weak, you know, move on. You don't move on from depression. It's, it's something that you accept, you accept your trauma. And I will, you know, talk within either a little bit of this podcast, but future podcasts, just like I do in my writings about building that resilience, because that's the key piece. But anyhow, I, uh, uh, when I was 22, that's when I was going through some pretty dark times, um, coming to some realities of what was happening, trying to figure out what, it, what I wanted to do. I had friends that were getting ready to graduate college, um, yet I was pretty stalled. I was trying to figure things out, and a lot of it was the past that I had was just suffocating me but I was able to pull myself up I kept moving through my 20s trying to figure things out did some random jobs here and there um, and then when I became uh, 31 I found myself going back into one of the deepest depressions I've had in my life I uh, went to the doctor. doctor put me on uh, some medication for the first time ever. And to me, um, the medication did not work right away. I, I'm not anti-meds. If it works for people, it's done wonders for people. It's saved their lives. For me, the medication that he first put me on, at least, um, made my depression worse. And once again, I found myself uh, having some suicidal ideation. Um I eventually found myself a therapist, and um, luckily, uh, well, I, I met him one time and decided, nope, can't do therapy, that's not for me, uh, weak people go to therapy, I can help myself. So I left him about six months later, things were getting worse and worse and worse, and I came back and found him, and I've been with him ever since, I've been with him for about 20 years. Uh, therapy has saved my life. It's something that um, has helped me. Um, you know, I look at him more as a consult these days. You know, as a, a sort of a life coach in some ways too, because he's helped me uh, coach me through many tough times. Um, but as I started to get further into therapy, I started to accept some of the things that were happening to me. I started to try to understand them. Um, tried to understand my depression a little bit more why I was having the thoughts I was having, uh, why I was feeling stuck in life, uh, feeling worthless often, um, like I was a burden to people, um, why it was often hard for me to want to stay in a job because I often felt uh, like I just wasn't good enough. Um, all these different things were compounding upon one another, and I, I, but I was starting to at least understand what was going on um, but then in 2004, I 
went to pick a uh, my best friend at the time. I went to pick him up at um, a psychiatric unit of a hospital that he had to check himself into for his for his own suicidal ideation. And uh, I picked him up and took him home, dropped him off, had a good talk on the way home. Um, tried to spend a lot of time with him uh, throughout the next several weeks, uh, which he asked me to do. He told me he needed me more than ever. And I tried to be there for him. Um, and about six weeks after picking him up from the hospital, my wife and I had a trip, a road trip planned out to Vermont, and I thought he was good to go. So I left. I went out to Vermont camping in the mountains. Uh, when I got down to a uh, uh, an area that had a little more reception at that time, at least, um, I got a call from my mother that told me my best friend had killed himself. as you can probably imagine the shock that came to me at the time i almost ripped off my fucking steering wheel i was driving my jeep at the time uh, somewhere toward lake champlain and um i had to pull over i was in a rage um i couldn't believe what i was hearing and i started to process it and went into immediate anger at him for what he did, um, you know, uh, came back for his funeral. And as I started finding out a little more information about, um, you know, some events that led up to him killing himself, my anger became worse. And then I went into some guilt, my own depression, questioning my own worth, my own life, and why wasn't I there to save my friend. Uh, that guilt base basically lingered on for a good six years. Um, and then what I started finding was is that losses start to build up in life. And yes, my friend killed himself, and I realized there wasn't a damn thing I could have done about it. Um, yeah, that helped a little bit realizing finally that I knew there was nothing I could have done to save him. And then, um, my sister, my dear sister, Charlotte, she also died suddenly. Um, hers was probably from years of buildup, but she had schizophrenia. Uh, she was also a person with an intellectual disability. Um, but she, uh, uh, she had some sudden things happen to her health, and she uh, she passed away. A few months after that, another good friend of mine um, died by suicide by cop. He was also having his own struggles with his mental illness. Uh, started drinking, went into a rage, uh, decided to end it by um, pulling a weapon on police. And as these things started to sort of pile up, I started to realize, uh, and this was around the time I started to realize I need to start speaking up. I became an educator uh, during this period. 
Um, mainly be, uh, one of the reasons because my best friend told me that I should. He said to me one day, Chuck, you'd be make a great teacher or a school counselor. You need to go do something with yourself. And um, after he died, I did. I went back and I became an educator. And I, I still don't know if I'm very good at it. But what I do know is that I, I care about the kids and I try to build strong relationships with them. And I also have been taking the last several years speaking to them about um, depression and about anxiety because it's on the rise and it's affecting our youth quite a bit. And so with all these losses that have been happening, I had to start speaking up. And and this is what led to a lot of my uh, my writing. It's led to the two YA, no, YA novels that I've written um, and also some of the public speaking that I've done and also this podcast um, just to bring more awareness. Um, anxiety came to me a little bit later in life. Anxiety, uh, that... It's a little motherfucker anxiety is. Um, <laughs> anybody who has it, anybody who has anxiety or has been through panic attacks um, knows uh, just the turmoil that that can do to your mind and bring to you. It's an awful feeling, but that came to me a little bit later in life. Um, the first panic attack I ever had, I was flying out to uh, San Francisco, and it was the first time I'd been back out there since my friend was shot by the police. And so I'm pretty sure that's probably what triggered the panic at the time. Um, and it was an awful feeling. I thought I was dying. And uh, it happened a couple more times while I was out on the trip. I decided to do some trail running over Mount Tam, um, drink a little red wine, and it helped. <laughs> but uh, uh, I came back, uh, talked to my therapist about it, and, um, you know, we identified it as anxiety and as panic. Uh, however, it went away for a few years. Uh, went away until um, I became a dean of students, um, trying trying my hat on with um, something different than teaching. And I loved being a dean of students. I loved working with the the, the kids and trying to help them navigate high school. Um, you know, doing the best I could with it um, and realizing, you know, in hindsight, yeah, I made some mistakes, wish I would have done a few things differently. But I also, um, my third year as a dean, uh, not only was I just getting burnt out with the position, burnt out with how much uh, sort of I was asked to do, you know, with trying to you know, work on behaviors within the school, but also, you know, uh, a few of the people that I was working with at the time, uh, you know, frankly, weren't as ethical as they could have been with some things that I've seen. And a lot of that has come out since. Um, but a lot of that was just draining me. Um, but the bottom line is, I also think a lot of my past traumas were coming back up again. And uh, I started getting uh, panic attacks that led me into um, the ER several times, getting EKGs hooked up to me. Um, I started noticing at work I was having symptoms of tingling in my hands, tingling in my face, 
blurred vision, headaches, chest pounding. Um, I was dizzy. I'd be walking down the hallways at school. The hallways started to move on me. It was pretty pretty awful. Um, I was not convinced that I had anxiety, even though a couple of doctors identified it as such. I kept going back in the, the ER because I thought for sure I was dying. Uh, they started doing some blood tests on me. Everything kept coming back normal, but I was sure this could not just be anxiety, you know, just anxiety, um, that it had to be something else. Um, through that process, they started taking me through. Um, I started asking for more tests. They started taking me through many more tests, giving me an MRI, uh, because the anxiety symptoms were so fucking bad that they actually um, were very much like uh, symptoms of MS or some other neurological symptoms that were happening. So they decided to give me an MRI. So folks, this is how bad anxiety can be. Um, I did get the MRI, found out I had benign uh, tumor. Um, you know, fucking great. That just <laughs> increased the anxiety even more. Then I had to start getting some endocrinology tests. I was sure something else, you know, that was the answer. That was why I had all these problems. But they assured me that I was okay. The benign tumor, we'll keep track of it. It's fine. It's not growing. It could have been there all my life. It's an incidental finding. So then I had to start accepting that as well. And I had to start accepting that I had anxiety. And that was a real son of a bitch to accept. And if I can just take a moment, here's what anxiety feels like to me. I'm in the middle of a lake. It's night and the shore is toying with me because each time I take a stroke forward, it moves further away. Reality comes that I'll never reach the shore no matter how hard I swim. My arms become heavy and my legs drag my body down from exhaustion. Suddenly, I cannot open my mouth to breathe and the air coming in through my nose is shallow and the air going out stops short of a full exhalation. The sensation makes my lungs feel like they will explode and my heart will stop. I struggle to tread water and then I scream but no sound comes out. It's all in my head. The more I fight, the faster I sink into the depths of the water. I'm drowning. Then I, then I relax and my mind releases me enough to breathe in deep and exhale slow and my nerves calm. The shore is suddenly there, sandy and close, and I can stand. I walk to solid ground and carry on for another day. There are other days when my anxiety is constant, is a constant chill through my body that makes every muscle tense, and I feel like I'll pass out because my head has been spinning all day. It's these days that my mind goes to places where I'm frightened, and I feel as if I may be going crazy. It's a consistent, dreadful feeling that rides my shoulders until I remember my breath and remind myself that I've felt this way before and will always survive. These are the moments when I build strength, realizing I'm resilient and will live another day, hoping to stay in the moment and enjoy life. Sometimes during those moments when it sneaks up on me and creates panic, I feel as if earth, if, if, as, sorry, as if the earth I am standing on is dropped out from under me. I can feel the adrenaline rush through my body and to my eyes and things get blurry like I might pass out. I hang on for the ride. It's just a little reminder that even when I'm feeling calm, 
that it's still there, lingering in the depths of me, waiting to emerge and grin and say, here I am, motherfucker. Get ready for the ride. So to me, that's what anxiety feels like. It's taken me on a ride. There are, there are some days when I'm having 20 just quick bursts of panic uh, that keeps me awake at night, creates insomnia, which, again, compounds on itself and makes the anxiety even worse. Um, and through this journey, I have come to the conclusions of the research I've done, the readings I've done, reading Thich Nhat Hanh, No Mud, No Lotus, and many other things throughout the years, I have come to the conclusion that there's a couple of, of things with depression and anxiety and all the traumas uh, in our past that we may have. Is that one, we need to accept it fully. Acceptance helps to not deny it anymore and try to bury it or compartmentalize it. Because when we do that, it's going to rear its ugly head whether we like it or not. So why not accept it? Why not accept it with great curiosity and and try to find some worth from our own depression and anxiety? Again, that acceptance part is peace is 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 key and it brings peace to us. The other piece is impermanence. Uh, this is something that Thich Nhat Hanh has taught me. Um, the idea of impermanence that, yes, I might be having 30 panic attacks. I might be having really bad depression, um, insomnia, whatever it may be that's coming at me. That idea of impermanence is something that has helped me because I know that it will get better. I know that I may be suffering, but I also have been happy at times. I've also felt good. I've had joy in my life. That brings hope. And that's very, very strong because hope is what we need. And there's also this other piece that, and this is hard for people to, to recognize sometimes or, or at least accept, is that we may have all the support in the world. We may have loved ones in our life that are there for us, that want to understand us, that want to accept us. We may have therapists that are there for us, that are helping us. It, it could be all the support that, that is needed that is out there. However, until we are ready to build our coping strategies, to build our own resilience and help ourselves, we will not get better. And that's really hard for people to understand sometimes because they do feel stuck, and I totally get that. But it's just the truth that we have to build our resilience. We have to build our coping and it will help us, uh, building those coping strategies will help us more than ever. Um, because it is our life. We, we, we need to live it. We need to live it fully. And by practicing mindfulness um, and building up my resilience, I feel like I actually, in many ways, have started to enjoy life even more. I live it, I live it with, uh, uh, with gust. I, 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 I uh, I live it with uh, like my friend who who uh, died um, a while back uh, by suicide, who gave me a uh, 
uh, a sticker one time that said, live life like your ass is on fire. I try to live it that way. I live it by my own terms as well. Um, some have called me rebellious for this, but no, I, I need to live life the way I want to live it because this is my life to live. It's my one life. I'm going to take it for all it's worth. And and I want to to find a lot of joy from it. But to me, finding joy is, is in helping others. Um, there is no rush like it in the world, and that's why I share with you. That's why I share with, with uh, people through my writing, through my podcast, through my books. It's why I need to help. So that's why I'm being transparent today. That's why I will, uh, will share in the future with you. Um, but for now... I'm going to leave you with this. You are not alone. Take care of yourself out there. Um, Remember, you are worthy. You are worthy of love. And you are worthy of love from yourself, too. You have to make yourself a priority. It's not being selfish. Because when you make yourself a priority, you are there and more available for others as well. So take care of yourself. Stay strong. Think about your your coping strategies that you need to develop, the things that, that make you whole, that make you feel better. It will help build resilience. And when you start to build that resilience, you will become extremely strong. You're going to have your, your tough days. You're going to have your tough moments. That's what depression is. That's what anxiety is. It, it brings on that suffering. But you got to build these strategies up while you're feeling good. So it becomes muscle memory. And I will make another podcast shortly to talk about coping strategies, to talk about resilience, at least things that work for me and things that um, I know have worked for others. And uh, I will share those with you shortly, and um, hopefully they will help. But for now, please take care of yourself. All right, thank you for tuning in to Nothing to Prove. I will talk to you again shortly. Be well. Hello, this is uh, Chuck Murphy with Nothing to Prove podcast. Um, we haven't been here for a little while. Um, thought I'd get back into doing a few podcasts and um, interviewing some people and maybe even doing some um, short mental health talks as well. Uh, but today I'm here with my mother, Elizabeth Ann Murphy, and it's been over a year since we've uh, talked on the podcast. Um, so we thought we would uh, give it another shot and see how we do and also maybe um, talk, talk about some subjects that um, we might need to, to unravel a little bit. So uh, welcome, Mom. How are you today? I'm feeling as well as expected. Yeah. So a lot of the, the people who come and listen to my podcast, um, they're people I probably know. I would imagine, and many of them um, are also very curious about how you're doing too. I've had many requests to interview you again and to start this podcast up again. And so the last, how long now have you been battling multiple myeloma? May 21st of 21 is when I found out and I have the last stage, which is stage three, 
and that's where you have to be very careful with your body as um, it's uh, terminal. There is no cure. There are treatments that will help hold it at bay, but there is no treatment. So that started, uh, well, this coming May of 23 will be two years. It's amazing how you can remember the days that you were told certain things, the days that, that something happened to your health or maybe um, some tragedy happened in your life and, and you, you remember those exact dates. Would you agree with I that? I try not to forget. Yep. Why is it important to remember? I think I can learn from them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a part of life, uh, of course, that's uh, the birth of a child, mm-hmm. the wedding date, and various holidays and happenings that you're able to be with family, group mm-hmm. together, and enjoy each other. Mm-hmm. What's been, with this, let's say, year and a half journey into to bone cancer, what's been the hardest part? Not being able to do what I used to. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, I was active for my age, mm-hmm. and I did not stop being active. My body slowed down, mm-hmm. and I have no control over what the body does. So, you know, and I believe you should listen to your body because it tells me when to stop sit down and rest and if you don't do those things you're going to wear yourself out Um, i'm currently in chemo treatment and 22 days out of the month i am in some sort of treatment program chemo I take a chemo pill 21 days out of the month, and one day out of the month, I go in for infusions with chemo. Mm -hmm. So it's just a pattern that that you set up, and and it gets to be routine. Mm -hmm. The, the, The thing that I noticed that has at least been difficult from from my standpoint as your son to watch is not only you losing your mobility but the pain you're in talk about the pain the pain yep because it's because bone bone cancer itself is known to be an extremely painful cancer i was actually when it was first diagnosed i've been hurting for a long time Mm -hmm. and I suspect it was part of the multibioma. And, uh, but they put me right away on a regimen of morphine and oxycodone if needed. Mm-hmm. 
in this year and a half, the pain has gotten worse, and I have not increased the medication. They pretty well leave it up to me as to what my pain level is and what I need to be comfortable. I have a high tolerance for pain, always have, and that comes into effect when you're taking medication. Uh, I am never out of pain. Mm -hmm. On their scale that they use a one to 10, I'm never under a three or four. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's there, it's there right now. And um, I will only take the oxycodone if, if I think I've let it gone too far. Mm -hmm. So that's how I put it together because as long as I have left, I, want, I have things I want to do mm -hmm. and I want to be coherent so I can be with my family. And I appreciate those that will ask about my pain because I think maybe they can understand a little better that um, I'm not giving in to it. So, but the pain level, right now I'm going to tell you it's probably an eight, mm -hmm. and um, that's the way it goes. It fluctuates? Yes, yeah. and my scale is, for taking it, I take the morphine in the morning, it's on an eight hour, eight hours, I wake up about seven o'clock, but I take take the pain medication about eight, 12 hours later, I take, or is it eight hours later, mm -hmm. I take another one, eight hours later. So that puts me in early evening and then right before I go to bed. I take the oxycodone if I think I'm not gonna be able to go to sleep. So mm -hmm. I hope that sounded mm -hmm. logical. I think if, if your pain level, and this is something I think that your kids and and others that know you well recognize, is that if your pain level is at a three or four, for most people that's probably a six, seven or so. If you're telling me today that your pain level is at an eight, you know, I would say for most, oh, most people that would be over a uh, 10 yeah. and they wouldn't be able to take it. Yeah, it'd be off the charts. And right. so it's important for people that are listening to understand that, that we all have. But I think if my children, they've always known yeah. that I have a high pain tolerance and I accept it and work with it. Yep. And I think that your children, some of them have, at least have, have inherited that as well. Yes. Yep. I know they have. Yep. So you you're on you're on this this journey here that you you keep you keep fighting and you um, your oncologist has said that your stubbornness one is is um, part of what's helping you continue. Talk talk a little bit about that stubbornness to to live because most people when they hear the word stubborn they think it's in a negative connotation where it's really not especially in this case 
It's actually a stubbornness to live. It's a stubbornness to battle with the cancer. Talk, talk about that a little bit. Well, let's, before I say stubborn, mm -hmm. which I already said there, um, I would like to say that, and I'm not patting myself on my back or anything like that, it's just my makeup, who I am, most of the time when anybody hears the word can cancer, that's the end for them. Mm -hmm. They go off the deep end. Mm -hmm. They have cancer. What do I do? You know, how long am I going to live? And all of that. My stubbornness goes with I do not accept what they build up a graph at mm -hmm. or anything. Uh, I don't, I don't accept giving up. I know I will live until, and I am spiritual. Mm -hmm. So therefore that puts me, I don't have to worry about the date that I'm going to pass from this world. My children should not worry about the date that I'm going to pass because it's out of our hands. There's mm -hmm. nothing we can do about it. Mm -hmm. So therefore, my stubbornness, yes, but I've been stubborn all my life. Yep. And it's probably helped you in many ways. I Well, I think it did. It got me through a lot of hard hard, hard hardships. Mm -hmm. um, when I was a child, most parents would tell their child, and I'm a country girl, would tell their child, oh, don't go walking in those woods. There's rattlesnakes up there. Well, that was a challenge to me because mm -hmm. I was smart enough to know to watch the rattlesnakes and no I did not wear boots I didn't have I barely had shoes but I've never been one that somebody could say you can't do that because I will show you I can and that's the stubbornness mm -hmm. that has lived with me my entire life and continues to I don't think I'm so stubborn that I, I have a point that I will say, uncle, give up. But it's there, and I'm not going to turn it loose because it's been my friend for a long time. Mm -hmm. It's got me through a lot of situations that were impossible, but I'm still here. So I actually, you know, I, I, I actually prefer instead of using, and especially in this situation, in situations I've been in, things that you've had to endure through your lifetime, I actually prefer the word resilience because I think that that's a, it's a more clear definition of what you're dealing with and what's been going on. That uh, resilience is a nicer word than mm. stubborn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. 
if you told people that I had a lot of resilience, mm -hmm. I wouldn't be giving you the I yep. Every time so I much. Yep. But when you say that I'm stubborn, I take issue with it. <laughs> well, you shouldn't, because there doesn't have to be um, negative. I would say I'm not the only family member that is weighed down with tons of resilience. Mm -hmm. They do not accept a hardship. They work through it. Mm -hmm. Which I think is something you taught. You know. uh, I think it's... I don't know if you said taught. Yeah, that you taught us. I, yep. I don't know if I would say that as much as setting an example. Mm -hmm. I believe that after I started having my children and they got big enough to quit playing with boxes instead of expensive toys, that um, I was supposed to set an example for how they should live. And I, it wasn't anything that would weigh them down or whatnot, but, uh, you know, be respectful mm -hmm. to your elders. Be respectful to authorities. And let's explain that. Just because someone's old does not mean that you have to be respectful, but what you can do is be respectful enough to walk away. Mm -hmm. because we have a lot of older people that think they're right when they are wrong, but mm -hmm. they're stubborn enough mm -hmm. to carry it on, and I don't believe in that. What do you think, um, you know, as you aged, you're, you're 83 and a half. Mm -hmm. at, yes. As you've aged, um, you know, you have lived a long life. You, you've lived a long life. I've been fortunate yep. that I have lived long enough to see a lot and learn a lot. It, what, is, what is something that you would tell listeners that are, are young, you know, in their 20s, 30s, 40s, the, the folks like me that are, you know, emerging into their 50s and on up, you know, in, in starting to climb, you know, sort of that ladder into, you know, into older age, what would you, what would you say is something that you would, would recommend to them and, and that you've learned along the way? That, that I would say that someone in their 50s, mm -hmm. they've climbed that ladder. Mm -hmm. Me, I'm on the downside. I'm the one that's watching my feet so I don't fall where they go on the realms of a ladder. So I'm on the downside of that. I truly believe if people can accept the fact that that's where they are. There's too many of us that they worry about age where it's such an immaterial thing to worry about, whether you're 50 or 80. Um, I've been fortunate not to have uh, some of the diseases that hit the elderly, and uh, I don't remember something sometimes. My children 
call it overload. Well, they won't let me use that term, overload. They say you just sold, which uh, is true. But no, if, if we climb it, you know, it's sort of, you know, like pyramid. You climb up to the top, and when you get up to the top, um, examples that I have seen is uh, in business is the pyramid, where you start down here at the bottom and you work your way slowly mm -hmm. to the top of the pyramid. Now you're on your downside. Now it's when you're preparing to be made. Mm -hmm. That's not hard to do. Um, I think things, we are, as human beings, we think things are my most priority. And to some people, things come before their children. Things is what's gonna be the downfall probably of all of us. We can, we need to learn to do without the things we don't need. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and when you get on that downside, that's the time to start giving it away to somebody that does want it and they can use it. Um, I think I've rambled off onto well, the subject. No, I think that, um, you know, a lot of people, they avoid, they avoid the conversation of, of death and dying. They, um, it makes them uncomfortable. Um, I've seen it with things I've on written. On what? On death and dying. So I, I've seen it, I've heard it through even things I've written, um, you know, and I, I've, I've seen people avoid the inevitable. And the inevitable yeah. is, is that we all owe a death. Every single one of us will owe that. And we don't know when it's coming. Nope. We don't know how it's coming. And, and frankly, um, I don't think I would want to know. I don't either. No. And, and I think that, you know, something that since you've gotten older, but also since you've been diagnosed with, with cancer, I think you and I have talked about death quite often. More than any of my children. Yeah. And I think that we've talked about it. I think to me, there's a, a great curiosity to, to that. Um, but when you're, you're, uh, you can tell, the fact is, you can tell that you have, um, things have changed for you from the moment you were diagnosed and even last a year ago to now. Things have changed for you. Yeah. Do you feel like that your time is coming? Um, well, of course, mm -hmm. my time is coming. Um, I don't fear cancer and I don't fear death so we can get that out of the way but I think there's an urgency mm -hmm. in me to get some things done that I want to get done yep uh, and uh, the same in my writing uh, you know it's uh, right now I'm working on a bio um, very hard to tell the truth yep. about things. Anyone that thinks writing is they can take a pencil and a piece of paper and shoot out a book in two hours, 
needs to throw it away mm. because it it don't work that way. Mm-hmm. But there's an urgency in me. I uh, I'm I'm so happy every time one of my children call and say they're going to drop by. That makes my entire day. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I get a text from them, when I get calls from them, and we have fun with that, I think, because I don't. Rarely, I do not use the two thumbs to use text. I'm slow in that. And I talk into it using my voice, and it brings up words that I do not mean to say. Which we all enjoy. (laughs) However, sometimes I do edit it and see what it is, and that's okay. But when I don't, my two sons take, great pleasure in just pointing it out. Yep. And if it'll make them happy, that's okay. But but no, it's it's everybody wants winter to hurry up and get by and spring to get here. I'm not in a hurry to get any of those seasons here. I'm just going to wait till they come. And, and that's, that's all we can do. There are many pe- people out there that have lost. They've lost mm-hmm. their children at 16 with drugs, at 20 with fentanyl that they've mm-hmm. gotten into. Um, so they, many, many people have had tragic things to go on in their lives. But we can't sit around and worry, is that going to be us? We have been dying since the day we were born. It was just when. And I'm not going, that's not going to be part of my legacy. Mm -hmm. My legacy to my children is love Mm -hmm. and joy and happiness. That's all I can give them, and that's all I want to give them. I don't worry about the dying part. So you said a couple of things that, that I want to comment on. One is having the sense of urgency. The sense of urgency is to live, to, to do the things that you want to do while you're here now. You, you're writing, you have a message that you want to leave for people. Is That's what writers do. We leave messages for people, and whether they choose to read them or not is up to them, or, or even understand them or not. Um, but... What I see in the world is often people talking about these things they want to do, these dreams they have, and yet they waste a hell of a lot of time. They waste time scrolling on their social media. They waste time being angry at someone, resentful, bitter. Um, they waste time, uh, you know. Being stubborn. Being stubborn, but they, they also waste time watching Netflix and on and on and on when these, you know, quote-unquote goals that they may set for themselves, they don't have a sense of urgency for. And I think that the great mistake that people can make is to wait until they are closer to death in order to all of a sudden have a sense of urgency to do the things they want to do. Finish that bucket list. You, you and, and I think that, you know, it, and it's about 
living in the moment now and doing the things that you want to do now. And whether that's, and, and I'm not talking about material things. Um, I'm not talking about the cars people drive, the house they live in. I'm talking about having in life experiences, about the love that you have in your life and about, um, you know, traveling and, and um, you know, being able to experience the world, but also sometimes the sense of urgency is to make sure that, you know, you might be sitting with the person that you love the most and, and watching the sunset. That's a sense of urgency. And one of these days, it's gone, you know. And so, um, you know, I think that when, when, I, when I sit here and I, and I talk to you, and I've talked to you for years about this, you know, because to me, we should talk to older people so we can learn from them about how to live. And it's not, it's, it, because we can learn from our own mistakes, but we can also learn from, from yours as well. Yes. And, and that's something that I think we also should not shy away from. The, you, you talk about, a, you know, you talk about what you're leaving behind and you, and you talked about what you're, what you're staying here for. So you're, you've been staying here mainly for your children. Yes. You've been going through these treatments which are no fun for your children, right? Right. So let's, let's talk about this for a moment. Let's, let's kind of go down, down the list a little bit. If you can tell your, each one of your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids and your sister something that you want to tell them so they can, they can hear this and you want them to know because I am a firm believer that you tell people how you feel about them before they're gone or before you're gone. And we have to do that. We have to, we have to call people, text people, write people, whatever it may be, and tell them how we feel, but also what we want for them. And if you, if you could sit back and, and want to tell each one of your kids something, something positive that you want for them for their life, that you wish for them, what would it be? And let's let's start with your your eldest. Let's start with Pat. What would you want want for Pat? I want her to be happy. Mm -hmm. To always find joy in living. That she's it's all right to be alone or just be with her husband. She worries about that, about staying together. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong that's going wrong. It's just that she's happy just she and Mike mm -hmm. being together. What I would like to see her do is enjoy life, as I said, a little bit better because they are staying at home. Mm -hmm. My opinion mm -hmm. they are staying home mm -hmm. and they have each other but I think they could they're both retired early mm -hmm. early retiring mm -hmm. and their biggest trips are like uh, to Green Bay mm -hmm. or watching the football games or watching any ball game mm -hmm. that's out there but for her I'd like them to get they she talks about travel but 
you got to get out and do it. Mm -hmm. Plan something for this year. Yep. You know, and uh, but she, I don't say much because she is happy at just staying at home. Yeah, yeah. Some people are very content with that, and yeah. that's okay. Yep. You know, for her to do that. Um, I love her beyond belief. Mm -hmm. um, Pat, for a long, long time, after she got grown, was my closest friend. Mm -hmm. And of course, things change. You get married, they have children, and her focus is on someone else. And that's what I want it to be. But I wish her happiness. That. Yeah and love yep that is if you can find love in your life that is that's something a lot of people don't get to experience yep and pat has found that and i love her so for doing it yep how about um, how about terry my terry my terry's terry she is a piece of my mother. Mm -hmm. um, she thinks and lives life like my mother used to be. Mm -hmm. And that's a, a joke with me and her. And my mother had there was, was a lot of things that my mother did was very good. So Terry has taken the good things of my mother yep. and ran with it, and I love her for that. Yep. I love her spunkiness. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that she has found someone that she loves and mm -hmm. can be happy with. I wish her joy and happiness. They do travel and do things that they want to. If they sit down and say they want to go to Green Bay tomorrow, they get up and go. Mm -hmm. And they are living their life the way they want it to. I would like for her, my biggest wish for Terry is for she and Tom to live for themselves now mm -hmm. because their children are grown. Mm -hmm. They can do for themselves. Yeah. That's how you learn. And I would like to see Terry make herself happy yeah. and find joy. And I love her so much. Yeah. What about Carl? Carl, he is the family man. Mm -hmm. Just love him to death. He, he wants all of us to get together and enjoy ourselves. Not every day. We, we'd all get tired and run away if we had to see all of our family every day. But um, Carl likes to keep the, the family ties going. And I have to be very careful about saying I want anything because Carl listens to it and I've let it go across my brain one way or the other. 
he has his mother's welfare at up in front as all times. He he is a good father, mm -hmm. and I I just I love him for the big heart mm -hmm. that he has, and he has a a big heart, and it gets so full sometimes. I probably think it will burst. Mm -hmm. But he needs to think of himself as well, mm -hmm. and he needs to do what he wants to do now. Don't wait. Don't put it off. If if you want to buy a snowmobile, go buy it. Mm -hmm. We hit a certain age that if we haven't done these things, they're not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And I love Carl so very, very much. He's like uh, very sensitive. He tries to do more than he has to. I wish him nothing but happiness and joy, and I hope he finds it soon. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, for the sake of not having a three-hour podcast, let's summarize something that you would tell your grandkids, all of them, your, grand, your grandkids, your great-grandkids. What is something that you would leave behind for them to carry with them? Because right now, some of them, they range anywhere, well, from baby, you know, on up to 40 years old. And um, there's a large range. Preston is 23. Yep. There, there is a large range, though, of from Elizabeth on down of grandkids, and they're at ages where some of them are trying to figure out their path in life. Some of them haven't even hardly started their path in life. And, um, and what, is, what is something that you would want to, some advice you'd want to leave behind for them? First off, They need to figure out where their path lies. Mm -hmm. It's not running to the grocery store, the ball game. That's, that's not what is in the mix here. But it's, it's your attitude, mm -hmm. how you look at life. I am, like you say, 83 and a half, and every day my spirit and my soul says, okay, you got to fix this. Mm -hmm. And we are given that inner intelligence to know whether or not we're following the right path. Mm -hmm. In order to follow that path, it may come from somewhere else. Someone else might have made a big mistake and that put a big impact on you. That you see yourself maybe going down that road mm -hmm. and say, oh no, I've got to change this, got to move out of this path. Take the path to the left instead of the one to the right. You won't be wrong. Your spirit will not tell you wrong. 
it's just being understood and figuring it out. I, it doesn't matter what kind of job you have. Not everybody can be president of the United States or a senator or mm -hmm. governor. Some of us have to build houses for a living, um, clean sinks, mm -hmm. toilets, whatever. But n take what you want to do, take your job and find joy in your job. If you are not happy in the job that you have, you're wasting your time. Mm -hmm. I want them to be satisfied with where they're at in life. But if they want more out of life, no, it's not gonna be handed to you. Mm -hmm. uh, mom, grandma, daddy, nanny. Mm -hmm. These people can maybe put out money for you to get on with your life, but I think you'll be a lot prouder of yourself if you figure it out for yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's not an easy job to do because you have things thrown at you you thought never would happen but it did, so you have to figure it out. Uh, some of my grandchildren uh, ha have figured out what they want to do, uh, and they have the jobs that they're happy in. Mm -hmm. um, then I have grandchildren that still have a vision of what they want to become or what they want to have in their life. Well, they got to work a little bit harder because mm -hmm. these grandchildren that already have it, it was not handed to them. Mm -hmm. They had to work for it. I wish for them to be prosperous. I want to be happy and joy. Always have enough to eat and pay your bills. And that's all you need and keep your heart full of love for everyone. We're not, we're not made out of the type of material that does not mess up sometimes. Mm -hmm. I have made more mistakes than I can count. I have tried to rectify them throughout the years. Sometimes I don't do a good job but I do wish for my grandchildren to be happy, have joy in their life, and prosperous. Mm -hmm. Let's um, let's talk a little bit about your. Um, I got a couple more people I want to talk about, and let's talk about your uh, sister Lynn down in Alabama, and and what is something that that you would like to be able to to say to her and to a message that you would want to leave her. And for her to be able to, because this is something that people will be able to continue to listen to as much as they want from from now until when you're gone. And that's why it's important. that That's one good thing about technology is that we can listen to people's voices for the remainder of our lives. Right. Yeah. Lynn, 
I have loved Lynn since the day she was born. Mm -hmm. I took care of her when other people that were supposed to be her caretakers didn't. They, before that, these, this caretaker waited on our mother to come home mm -hmm. and take over the job of taking care of Lynn. Then when I saw what was happening, I never was in any after-school activities anyway in those days, and I'd hurry home. I would take care of Lynn mm -hmm. till mother come home. I, she's just like one of my children. Mm -hmm. I've never looked at her any different than being one of my children. We've had differences as we aged in our lives. Um, and of course, without a doubt, I love her and I am sorry if I've ever offended her and she has to me, we have to accept responsibility for what we do then. Mm -hmm. And I have tried to be there for Lynn as long as I could. Uh, I wish her happiness and joy as well and to prosperous. Lynn is only 16 years younger than myself. Um, I think all I can say about that is that my love for her has not changed and it never has and never will. Mm -hmm. Time and distance means nothing. And of all the people that we talked about, when I leave here, I will take their love with me. Mm -hmm. And she has a special place in my heart and always will. Mm -hmm. I think she'll like to hear that. So, Charlotte. Charlotte passed away a little over 12 years ago. And she was your second child. Um, Char Charlotte, the great influencer of our lives, I think. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, somebody who I think brings tears to our eyes every time we mention her. And um, I think in many ways the glue that sort of kept our family together. She was the glue, yep. yes. I, I, think that, I think that there has been some, in my opinion, and, and anybody can dispute me on this, but there's been some splintering of our family since Charlotte has been gone. And, and I think that that's no coincidence. Um, of course there has and, been. And there might, there might be some... It, it might be mended again one day, hopefully, but I do think that sometimes someone's death can splinter uh, a family. And I think with Charlotte's complexities of being <coughs> bi of being bipolar, of being um, of having an intellectual disability, you know, I, I I've written and talked about how much of an influence she's had in my life and in my choices I've made. But when you do leave this earth do you feel like you're going to see her am i going to see charlotte yep. absolutely yep and and what is something that you would say to her when you see her 
I'm home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm home. Yeah. The uh, I I cannot imagine the um, the torment of losing a child because I I'm, I don't have a child. Um, I cannot uh, imagine how that feels. I do know how it feels to lose a sister that I love very much, but I don't know how it, how it is to lose a child. So I would imagine that, that Charlotte is going to be waiting for you. And and my little baby, four-legged <laughs> baby. Yep, and I would imagine Charlotte's pain that she had when she was here on this earth is gone, and I think your pain will be gone too. And I, and I, oh, yes, yes. Yeah. Yep. Um, We'll remember everything, but be, we'll be able to know mm-hmm. that I believe that we write what our lives are going to be mm-hmm. before we come to earth. I believe while we're here, we have the free will to make choices. Mm-hmm. We can take the left or the right around the church. We don't always listen to our hearts, that spirits that say, no, don't go that way. But because of certain things, you go anyway. Charlotte was a very intelligent woman. Mm -hmm. Um, Her disabilities She was born in a time where help was not available mm-hmm. to her as it is now. Uh, I think my my family, which includes all of my children and my grandchildren, uh, she was very smart. But she would get out and take care. She took care of Preston while he was little. Uh, Elizabeth and I, my oldest grandchild, we laugh. When Elizabeth takes me to the store, I'm pushing the buggy, the cart, mm-hmm. and I'll reach up and I'll get a can of soup and I'll hand it to Elizabeth right next to me, and she puts it in the cart and goes, thank you, Charlotte, Mm -hmm. because that's what Charlotte used to do. Mm -hmm. She never put her, what she purchased, in the cart herself. Mm -hmm. She would pick it up and hand it to Elizabeth, and we've laughed about (laughs) that. Uh, Charlotte taught Elizabeth a lot, and she helped raise Preston. Mm-hmm. If Charlotte was with us, she would be very excite, excited about Malachi. Yep. That's Preston's little boy. She would be very excited. A lot of people didn't know, even with her disabilities, up at uh, Yahar House, mm-hmm. she was the head cook up there. Yep. And she would cook every day up to maybe 50 people. Yep. She got the recipes together 
told them how to make it mm -hmm. and all of this. She was responsible in a lot of different things. And I wish today that people that are in charge of taking care of anyone with that type of disability, which was uh, bipolar, schizophrenia, mm -hmm. uh, say the other one. Intellectual disability. Yes, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and Charlotte, some things that my children don't even know because I got it. Uh, Charlotte, too, was a writer. Mm -hmm. Charlotte would write me stories. And so uh, this writing thing has to be generic, mm -hmm. genetic. Genetic's the word, yep. not generic. That's me. Yep. Genetic. <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, and she could, uh, but she knew how things were going. And like I was going to say, doctors and psychiatrists and them, she was over-medicated. Yep. She heard voices yep. in her head. I have been privy many times to these voices in her head. It scared her. Many times I've locked my doors with Charlotte on the other side because I didn't know where she was at, what level she was at in her disability. Mm -hmm what would happen. We need to, the health community needs to quit giving, medicate these people instead of letting them use other methods. Yeah. Meditation, yeah. reading, writing, taking a walk. Mm -hmm. There's other ways to take care and that's the reason I have such a high tolerance for pain. If it gets too bad on me, I will get up and take the dog for a walk. Yeah. By the time I get back, my depression has gone down yeah. to a such. But uh, yes, Charlotte was a glue that held his family together. We changed. We did not have as many picnics, mm -hmm. get-togethers. Uh, cookouts, those type of things. When Charlotte left, that left as well. And that needs to change. I don't care who you dislike in how they walk, how they talk, or what they said. If they're family, you need to make sure that the splinters are sanded down to a smooth operation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that life's just too damn short to to hold anger, and we're human. We're human creatures, so you know this is all our own human experience. So we all we all have that. We all have anger. We all have maybe some resentment or whatever it may be in us. Um, but when it comes down to it, and and I think what we've been talking about here today is that. You know, when you when you are sort of at the end, when you when you have something uh, as traumatic as a you know being diagnosed with a, a incurable cancer, 
being 83 and a half, getting to that point in your life where, you know, you know that it's closer to the end than your, than your beginning, I, I would imagine, because even at, at 52, I think I am, 52 years old, I look and kind of think the same kind of things, but I think it's just too short. Life is way too short and too fragile in order to be hanging on to a lot of that. And I think that even, you know, and that, that's one of my final questions I have for you is, have, have you had to, during this time, have you had to do some reflection on your own life? Because I, I don't think that, I don't think anyone should, um, should feel like that they are, uh, you know, everybody makes mistakes, but I don't think anyone should, should regret, have regrets. I think regrets are a waste of time. But at this point in your life with everything that you've been fighting and, and knowing, you know, what the outcome is going to be here, do you have things that you had to reflect on and maybe forgive as well? And, and have you had to find some forgiveness in some of the things that you've held on to, whether that be dad, your own mother, whatever that may be, have you had to, and you don't have to get into detail if you don't want to, but have you had to kind of find that within yourself to do that while you're still here? Yes. Yeah. You absolutely do. You have to, uh, you have to give up what I have, the, to go back, start in just a quick summary of what the cancer that I have it's a slow killer mm -hmm. um, they may be better choice of words but I how don't have them how about brutal son of a bitch well it, it is okay. the, uh, the trouble with um, multimyeloma is that uh, that cancer don't kill you. There's treatments, there's going to come a time where the treatments just absolutely are out of range and there's nothing you can do about it. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen more or less than anything else is that I'll get an infection or something like that that's gonna put me in the hospital and that will get me. But it is a slow, I put it to like a good friend of mine, Judy. She had pancreatic mm -hmm. cancer. The doctor had all of the information that he needed. And she went in and he looked at her and told her to get her affairs in order that she might have two weeks. That's what an extent is was. First time I'd ever heard of anybody just pinpointing a day. Judy lived two weeks to the day. Mm -hmm. uh, she passed away on Sitnamai. I believe that's May 20-something. Yeah. And, uh, but it was so quick, they, they took care of her pain, you know, of course, we have medicine to do that. And you're foolish if you don't take it because you can't stay with your children if they give you so much pain medication, you, you're incoherent. 
And, uh, but what I have, I wake up every morning saying, well, thank you, God. Right now, you've given me another day. So therefore, I have to live day by day. Mm -hmm. Us doing this for you. I, I love doing it because I don't know that I'm going to be able to do it tomorrow. Mm -hmm. um, now, you've, you've overlooked. You've, you've thought of everything. But you have overlooked yourself. Hmm. You didn't ask me what I thought about Chuck. <laughs> overlooking myself, huh? You, there definitely was overlooking yourself. Chuck mm -hmm. has made mistakes in his life. He worries about them. He studies them. And he corrects them. I wish for him and Karen love, joy, and happiness. And I hope that they continue doing everything that they do. But let's not close this until I've brought you and Carl hmm. into one subject. I know that my girls love me. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's without a doubt. Uh, however, I seem to be GPS <laughs> by my voice. They know where I'm at every moment. If I leave the building I leave, live in, they call me, where are you going? Mm -hmm. What you going to do? Chuck and Carl, they have supported me in everything that I could possibly want or do. They always see that my refrigerator has food in it, which they don't have to, but this is their stubbornness <laughs> in there. Uh, but they always see that I get picked up now that I don't drive and taken places. Them and their wives have taken me to my chemo that once a month. But Chucky wants to know what I've done lately, what on my, what's on my mind. Carl wants to know that I'm okay, what's on my mind. They're both have been the most wonderful sons that a mother could have. And I've always said, for some reason, God didn't mean for me to have a good marriage. Mm. But he gave me the most excellent children that any mother could want. That's all four of them and one person who has diligently taken me everywhere I needed to go whether it be shopping or grocery stores 
or to chemo, doctor's appointments, is my oldest grandchild, Elizabeth. And I want all the other children to always be appreciative of Elizabeth, how much she has given to provide for me. But all of, I've got the greatest children in the world. I wish I could do more for them, but I can't, and I allow that sometimes to be first on my mind when I know I shouldn't. I, I have a wonderful family, and that includes my sister who lives in Alabama. I, I wish that everyone that's listening could have the family that I do because I never want for anything. Last but not least for me, Chuck and I are going to see the Van Gogh exhibit Christmas Eve. That is a, something that I just could jump up and down and cheer for. <laughs> but I'm gonna get to go. That's what the boys do and things like that. And Terry and Pat, too, come up with so many little things. I want to end my part of this that all we have is love. And, we and I know that we take it with us. Mm -hmm. Thank you for having me do all this. Yeah, I, I think that this is a, a good a good way and a good place to end. I I recently wrote a, a blog about you again from a conversation that we we had a while back about you talking about things that that you may have wished you would have done through your lifetime when you were younger, the decisions that you made and things like that, and your purpose and um, you know and and as I wrote. And as I said to you then, I think your purpose was to be a mother. I think that's why you're you're here. And that's the bottom line. And I think that um, that there's probably no greater purpose. Um, that was my vision to always be a good mother. Mm -hmm. And like every other mother, mother. Um, and I include Lynn in on this as part of my children. Every mother has had difficulties with their children. Every, all of them, all of them. They've had difficulties of things that were said and done, but it's hard, very hard to be truthful. And probably one of my downfalls is that I cannot tolerate lies, telling lies, and the only reason that I won't, I will stand back and, and misinterpret the truth is if it's going to hurt somebody else. Sometimes I fail at that, too. I'm just human, but yes. I think that would be the greatest 
thing that I could have in life is to be a good mother. Yes. Um, because you can be a mother and do a lot of things on the side, like writing and painting mm -hmm. and such. Uh, just being a mother doesn't stop you from having your own personality and have the, all your own things that you want to do and things that you didn't get to do, the things that you have waited too late. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you uh, doing this with me, and um, we'll end it here. And I hope for all you listeners out there that, you know, you've learned something today, um, not only about life, but about death and dying, about forgiveness, about um, meaning out of life, and uh, take that with you, and especially for all of my siblings and, and my uh, nieces and nephews and, and just family in general, um, hopefully you have captured these words that were told to you today and, and hopefully you'll listen to them um, when you need them most and we'll continue to listen to them. So take care. Until next time, this is Nothing to Prove.